If you would take your copy of Scripture with me this morning, our Scripture reading is going to be from Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 5 through 9. That will be what Pastor Pete is preaching from this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we can be here this morning, and I pray that you'll help us as we understand this passage to see how our identity that we have in Christ should change our passions, our our desires. Lord, I just pray you'll help us as we work through this today, that we'll understand it clearly, we'll be honest with ourselves about the areas we need to change, and we'll have the courage to change. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 3, as Pastor Will read, uh, we're continuing through our series of Colossians. Uh, My wife and I, my wife Bethany and I, were married on January 1st, uh, 1999. We just celebrated 20 years just back in January. When we got married, I had already completed my my education, my my college degree, but my wife still had to finish up her, her teaching degree. And all she had left to do was student teaching. And so we had, we had made a plan that we were going to move to Minnesota. And my wife was going to do her student teaching after we got married uh, at a, a school called Faith Baptist Christian School. Uh, just so you know, there was a, she, as she was there, she taught fourth grade. And there was a student in her class named Nate Mason. Yes, the same Nate Mason, the famous Nate Mason. So... Uh, but anyway, we were getting ready to move there, and so in preparation for our marriage, in preparation for all that was going to take place, I moved to Minnesota in August of the year before. Um, when I first moved there, I, I, my sister lived in the area, and so I lived with her. Um, I attended her church. I helped my brother-in-law, who was a youth pastor at the time, I helped him with his youth group, and, and I, I lived there. But... Um, about a month or so, a month or two before our wedding, um, I got our apartment and moved in. And so for about five to six weeks, I was a bachelor. The only time in my life that I lived alone. Now, my wife and I didn't have a lot of money. We had just gotten out of college and we were saving money, but we didn't have a lot. And so uh, we didn't have a lot of furniture in our apartment. We had a cheap bedroom set and a table and, and, a, and a sofa and uh, I think a bookshelf and a filing cabinet. I think that's about all we had when we fir- first moved in. So um, there wasn't much in this apartment where I was living by myself. Um, I didn't have a TV. I didn't have anyone to come home to. And so I didn't really spend a whole lot of time in that apartment. Uh, I kind of, uh, as I said, lived a life of a bachelor. I would come and go as I pleased. I would eat what I pleased. Uh, Oftentimes I would go out to eat. Uh, I I remember one night, um, I I worked, the job that I worked, I worked from 
uh, four in the morning until roughly noon. Sometimes it would be a little later. It was not an hourly job, but it was the type of job where it was when I finished my work, and so sometimes it wouldn't be until three in the afternoon. And so I'd come home, and because I worked at four in the morning and I, I had to drive a half hour to get to my work, I would go to bed early, and so a lot of times I would eat dinner early. And I remember one particular night I came home and I was hungry, and so I decided to go to a buffet. I got to the buffet, and it was like 4, 4.30, because I would eat early, and I walked into the buffet, got my food, and I sat down. It was only then that I realized something. Surrounding all around me was a bunch of single men. I was not the only one. Now, here was the difference, though. All the other single men sitting around me were in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And here I was, a 22-year-old, and I realized I should not be here. I am out of place. But as a bachelor, I would just did what I want. I, I came home when I wanted. I ate what I wanted. I would go over, uh, I didn't have a TV, so I'd go over a friend's house, Paul Ice. He lived in the area, him and his wife. And I'd go over his house to watch football and baseball and basketball or whatever I could watch. I think Jill got sick of me being there. But I would go over there. On my days off, I would sleep in until noon or however long I could sleep. And I just did what I wanted for the most part. I am not necessarily a sloppy person, but I'm probably not the most organized person either. And so I would come in the door and I probably wouldn't necessarily hang my clothes up the way I should. Uh, I probably would throw some clothes in the corner or dishes might pile up. Not that I use dishes very often. But as I said, on January 1st, 1999, my wife and I got married. After our honeymoon, we came home to this apartment, and we settled into our apartment. We both, she went to her student teaching, I went back to work. Now imagine the first day back to work, and I finish work, and I come home, and I am home for a little bit, and I throw my stuff on the ground, and I, and, and, I, and I go, oh, it's great to be home. And my wife is, you know, she's excited because we just got married, and so she's excited to do some cooking, and she's made a meal, and I go, oh, that's nice, but I decided I'm going out to eat tonight. I'll see you later. How do you think that would go over? Not very well. You see, I could not, when we got married, I could not live as a bachelor anymore, because I wasn't one. Last week in in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, we looked at how our salvation in Christ has given us a new identity. If you are in Christ, meaning you are a child of God, because of the work of faith that God did in you, then you have a new identity. You're not what you once were. Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that I am a new creature. Old things are passed away. I am changed. And just like my, my life should have changed after marriage because I got a new identity. I was now a husband. So too, the life of a believer should change completely. Now, now here's the thing. Would, would it be better for me to change because my wife made me or change because I wanted to embrace my new identity? 
obviously the better thing would be to uh, change because I wanted to embrace my new identity. If I changed only because my wife made me, then, then I really wouldn't be a changed person. I would just be different on the outside. And that's what Paul's been talking about at the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3 is this, is we are to change not because it's a, oh, we have to, and it's something God is making us do. No, we change because we say, hey, I am not the same person and I want to I look different because my identity is different. So just as my life changed after marriage, so too the life of a believer should change because of our new identity. F.F. Bruce said this, be in actual practice what you now are by divine act. Because of what Jesus Christ did, that is the supernatural work of Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross, I am now forgiven, I am now a, a child of God, I am now righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. And so we should now be in practice what we are by divine act. As I said last week then, chapters 3 and 4 are Paul then telling us what our new identity looks like. And so let's look at this aspect today. Today we're going to talk about the idea of the removal and the restraining, the the, the getting rid of the old life. Next week we're going to get into what does the new life look like. So first of all, we need to uh, be removing the sinful actions. Oops, sorry about the typo there. Uh, removing the sinful actions of the flesh. Look at verse 5. He says there in verse 5, put to death therefore. Again, that therefore is a constant reminder to look back to the text to see what proceeds. Therefore. So just as a summary, therefore, since you died with Christ, therefore, since you were raised with Christ, therefore, since you are hidden in Christ, therefore, since one day you will appear with Christ, therefore, since you have a new identity. What Paul is saying is, therefore, because of all that we've talked about, what are you to do? Look what he says, verse 5, put to death. Now, the New American Standard says, consider as dead. Uh, the King James says, mortify. Now, we don't usually use the word mortify, so, so that might not be a clear word, but uh, really, that, that is a good word to use there because that word mortify comes from a, a Latin word, which, um, which is the, the same place we get the word mortuary, which we understand. The mortuary is what? Where we send dead bodies. And the idea of what Paul is saying there is that, that something needs to be put to death. One commentator spoke of the seriousness of this command this way. He says, the wording here used implies that sin will not die out by itself, but we must kill it. And death can be a very painful process. Put them to death, kill them, take no prisoners, show no mercy. That's what Paul is commanding. This is not the self-denial of asceticism that we talked about a couple weeks, but because we now have a new heart, a new desire, a new power, a new identity, Christ is in us, and we, by his Spirit, now kill those passions one by one. We are to show no mercy to the old man, just as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to, what, cut, pluck out the right eye, cut off the right hand if it causes offense. The seriousness what Paul is saying here is this is not a small matter. This is not just a simple mm, kind of put it aside. 
No, this is a serious matter. God must work through us, but as I just said in the quote I read, it is your actions that make it happen. This is obvious by the way it is said. The phrase put to death is an active voice, meaning that I as a believer, you as a believer must do it. Now we only do it through the power of God, but we must do it. The reality is is that it is this really hard work to do, but we cannot grow until we do it. Um, When I... um, hurt my Achilles, however long ago that was, two months ago, playing softball. After the initial few minutes uh, of hurting, really there was no pain. The pain was small. It was, just, it was uncomfortable, but there was, there was not a lot of pain. And so when I went to the doctor and the doctor said, hey, uh, you need surgery, imagine if I looked at the doctor and said, come on, doc. I'm not experiencing pain. Can't we just let this go? But, but you'll never walk the same. I know, but I'm not, I'm not experiencing pain. I mean, can't I just let this, just let it ride? It's not a big deal, right? No, but the problem was, the only way to fix the problem completely was to go under the knife, which resulted in pain. As believers, sometimes we convince ourselves that the sin is not really that bad. And, and, and maybe, maybe we can just let it slide. Again, this, it's too hard to get rid of, we'll just let it go. Yet, we must do the hard work of putting it to death, putting it under the knife, in order to be spiritually healed the way God intends us to be healed. I heard someone else explain it this way. Uh, imagine if you bought a house, you bought a new house, and it's time for the house inspection, and they, they inspect the house, and they say the house is just filled with termites. As you look on the outside, you can see places where there's holes where the termites got in, and, and you can see the effects of the termites, and, but you really want this house, and so you say, no big deal, I'll take care of it. And so you buy the house, and you go out there, and you get some, some, some putty, and, and you, you cover up the holes that the termites cause, and you even put pain over it, but have you solved the problem? No. But so often, that's what we do as Christians. Well, you know, I, this is what I was before I was saved, and I, I'm, I'm a Christian now, and, and, and I've, I've painted the exterior. I look better. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't do the obvious things I used to do, but still, there's, there's the termite damage is still there. The sin damage is still there. But he tells us here that we must put it to death. But what does he tell us to put to death? Look at the verse again. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly. Now, this is a similar idea that that, uh, Paul talked about a couple times before that we already preached on, but the elemental spirits of the world, the stuff that is of earth. He says, put to death the stuff that is of earth. This is an earthly mindset that leads to actions that are earthly. But thankfully, Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hey, put to death the stuff that is earthly, and we sit there going, Paul, I don't know what you mean. What is earthly? He tells us. Look what he says. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So he tells us, and he answers two questions for us, and I want to look at it, both our points today. First of all, what are we to remove? And then secondly, we'll look at why. 
But first of all, what are we to remove? Uh, Paul gives us a, uh, two lists in this passage that we're going to go through, two lists of sins uh, that we are to get rid of. And, and lists, as you go through Paul's writings, and really uh, we see this in writings of that same period that are not biblical writings, but are writings, lists were very common in this culture. Uh, these lists were often called vice or virtue lists. Sometimes the, these lists were good virtues to achieve. We see this even in Paul's writings. Actually, we're going to look at this next week, but in Paul's writings, you can think of a perfect one as the fruit of the Spirit. That's a virtue list. But other times we see these lists to avoid. These are vices, things that we are to remove. And Paul gives us two lists of vices in this uh, passage. And we're going to look at the second one here in a few minutes. But let's focus on this first one. This first one uh, he gives us deals with, for the most part, it seems to deal with sexual sins. Let's talk through what they are. First one is sexual immorality. Uh, this one leads this list for a, a very important reason. In fact, if we look at Galatians, we're not going to turn there, but Galatians chapter 5, Paul gives us a similar list of, of sins, vices. And again, in that one, sexual immorality leads the list. Uh, this is a word that uh, comes from a Greek word, pornania, which is where we get the word por- uh, pornography. Um, and basically, the, the meaning of this word is simple. It's excessive behavior or lack of restraint. Now, it doesn't necessarily refer to uh, just sex, but in this case, it does. Um, and in most cases in the Bible, it does. It's associated with sexual indulgence. And this one kind of sets the tones for all the other ones because it's saying this is just that that general sense of sexual immorality or or sexual acts outside of the legal biblical marriage. Say, Paul, why are you dwelling on sex so much? Let me explain a little bit about their culture. Uh, Their culture, there was a lot of pagan worship. And and, and oftentimes in pagan worship in Paul's day, Uh, sex and worship went together. Um, It was was a part of what was taking place, and and so much so that Paul deals with it in numerous of his letters. In fact, in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, uh, he he had to write to them because they had become tolerant of these sexual sins because it was normal in their culture, just as it is in ours. We look and we see this, this word immorality used numerous places in Paul's writings and every time we see it, there's this, there's this idea of this needs to get, be gone. Let me just read some. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Ephesians 5, 3, he says, immorality should not be named among you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, he says, it is the will of God to abstain from immorality. We see those phrases, flee, uh, abstain, not be named among you. And the idea that Paul is saying is this should not be what we are associated with as a church and as Christians today. Uh, It might not be the same as it was then in the sense that it's connected with pagan worship, but today it uh, it is rampant throughout our culture. And sexual immorality, Paul says, is something that not only should we not do, but we should put it to death. We should get out of our our lives, out of our churches. For the most part, this isn't something that we see thrown in our faces because 
we know, ah, we got to keep this hidden, but it's not something that should be part of what goes on in a church. He goes on with the second one. He says, impurity. The word used here actually refers to all kinds of moral evil, but it usually, again, deals with the topic of sexual sins. We often would see it in Scripture as spiritual uncleanness. This goes beyond just the physical that the last one dealt with. This goes beyond that, and uh, it's, it's talking about any area of inappropriateness in the area of sex. It could be conversation. It could be humor. It could be what we view on TV, on the Internet. It could be simply your thoughts. Anything that is dealing with uh, relationships outside of the marriage relationships. And Paul said, this needs to be put to death. Thirdly, passions. Uh, Throughout Scripture, we see this word passion translated other ways. Sometimes it's translated lust. The Greek word here is an interesting one. It's It's a word that means a drive or a force that will not stop until it's satisfied. We see this word used in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, and in that passage it's translated dishonorable passions. And I want you to understand the context of that, of that passage is talking about unnatural desire that a man has for another man and a woman has for another woman. And here he's talking about these passions, this this drive or this force that pushes you to do something and you do not stop until it's satisfied. The passions of our our old nature are going to rise up. We, as Christians, if you are here today and you you call upon the name of God and you have a new identity, that that is great, but that old flesh is still in there, that old nature that rises up and says to us, give me, give me, give me. But as believers, we don't have to give in. Believers can say no. Again, this is not the absence of self-denial and asceticism of, okay, I'm just going to reject this because I am more holy. No, this is, this is something different. This is saying, I have a new identity. And this is not operating in our own strength, but based on the truth that, that, that we have died with Christ. Therefore, our life is hidden in Christ. These passions. Fourthly, he says evil desire. Like the last three words, this one includes sexual desire, but, but more so than the other ones, this includes the areas outside of sexual sins. The word desire there is not necessarily a, a word that implies sin. There can be good desires. What makes this sin is the word evil that comes before it. The word there describes the evil that comes within us. Desire is a mindset that leads to action. What we desire, we usually determine to do, no matter what. 
you have an appetite for candy, then you're going to satisfy that appetite by eating a lot of candy. I'm not saying candy is wrong, but you're going to satisfy that. But if there comes a point when you're unhealthy and you say, oh, uh, I've got to change my appetites. <laughs> I remember um, years ago, uh, I was coaching soccer here, and we had a Christian school, and I had a young man on my soccer team who um, his mom did not allow him to eat sugar. And uh, he was a super, super healthy eater, and, and, uh, and, but everyone knew he hated it. And one day, we were on a soccer trip. We were on a tournament, actually, and I, I believe we were at, um, I think it was Maranatha for a soccer tournament. And uh, at, at Maranatha, they had one of those soft-serve ice cream machines, you know, the ones where you, you get your own ice cream, okay? And we walked in for dinner, and, you know, the rest of us went and got our food, our, our pizza, or our sandwiches, or whatever it was, and we got our trays. And this young man grabbed a salad bowl. Not the bowls that come by the ice cream. You know, the ice cream bowls are like this big around. No, he got the salad bowl. And he walks over to the ice cream and the ice cream machine and he takes it and I'm walking by him and he just grins at me. <laughs> and he goes like this, he turns it on and it goes in, he fills it, fills it, fills it. I mean, it was heaping like this high over the bowl and it starts falling down and he goes and sits down and I looked at him, I said, you're going to have an upset stomach after that. And he looks at me and goes, I know, <laughs> but I got to have it. That's that desire. I'm not saying having ice cream is evil, because if it is, I'm evil. But that's that desire of saying, I have to quench this. And it could be sexual, but it also could refer to anything that is not godly in your life. Food, possessions, money, popularity. Anything. Paul says that desire should not be part of who you are because you have a new identity. Then the final one in this list is an interesting one. It's covetousness. Now at first glance you might say, how does this connect with the rest one? Really, this one, this covetousness piggybacks on top of the last one because it's an inappropriate desire for more and more and more and more. Now in this case, it's not leaning towards the sexual in nature, it's, it's dealing with the area of possessions and things and money. It's that desire to have more, and Paul says this should be something that we put to death. Now, up until this point, many are going, yeah, I don't deal with this. I don't got a problem with immorality or this or that or this. But how many of us struggle with covetousness? I have to have more of fill in the blank the thing that you like. Now what's interesting is at the end of this verse he says uh, in in the verse 5 in covetousness which is idolatry. Now what is the connection point there between uh, sexual immorality and idolatry? As I said, in the, in, in the culture where they were living and in, in Jewish literature even, there was this connection between sexual immorality and idolatry. And at first glance, it might be hard to understand the connection between immorality and covetousness and idolatry, but it's rather simple. And here's what it is. Anything that we lust for or desire greatly that, um, 
beyond God can push God from the center of our lives and ultimately captivate our love and our passion. And I've seen that many times. I've said this before. When I was a youth pastor, I saw this many times with young people where there would be a young person who, man, they, 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 they loved being in church and they loved God and they would read their Bible and they would talk about this and then, and then they got to be the age they could, to, could get a job and they, oh, I got to go get a job. I got I to gotta save money for college and, and they get a job and, yeah, but I got to have a car and no, I just don't want any car. I got to have a good car and they want to get a good car and before you know it, church was poof, way to the side. And that wasn't just the car, it was, it was this and it was that. And before you knew it, there was other things that were involved. And, and those things became their God. But it's not just teens. It's not just teens. How many of you as adults, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you, your, that hobby that you have, you just keep throwing money into. Because you love it. Not wrong to have hobbies. But it becomes this, this passion, this desire, and Paul says, put it to death. I remember talking to a guy a number of years ago that had a hobby, and it was something he loved, and he... He said it, it got to the point it consumed him so much that he said, I can't ever do it. Was it wrong? No, it was actually not a bad idea at all. But it became too much. And it captivated his love and his devotion. And so Paul says, what are we to remove? He gives us this list. But the second question we want to answer is, why do we remove it? Look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, Paul gives us in this passage two reasons uh, why we are to remove these things, and we'll address one here and we'll address the other one later. But the, the one here is, I, I, I don't believe is a, a, a threat uh, because uh, I believe this is a reminder. Remember, Paul is, is talking to a church that was comprised of people who had been given new life in Christ, and so this statement is not a statement of, hey, watch out, you're going to be judged. This statement is a statement of, hey, God takes it so seriously that he's going to judge. And that's not part of who you are. So put it to death. You know, the wrath of God has, has, has become a topic that many modern theologians do not even want to speak about. Because it goes against the concept taught today that God is only a God of love. I could list off three or four theologians in the last ten years that have shifted their, their opinion to say they no longer believe in hell. Why? Well, because God is a God of love, and so why would God send anyone to hell? See, I think the problem is we often view wrath and we view, view the judgment of God from the perspective of man and, and we can only see it as sin because when I, when I do something in wrath, okay, it is sin. When I judge someone, a lot of times it's just my selfishness. But that's not God. God's wrath is righteous. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is even loving. Loving. 
I love what one author said, uh, Earl Ellis. He said this, Far from neglecting God's wrath, his, uh, excuse me, far from neglecting God's love, his wrath confirms it. You say, well, uh, how is that possible? He goes on, he says this, For without justice, mercy loses its meaning. Let me explain what he means by that. If God was not a God of wrath, then there would never be a need for mercy. And without a need for mercy, then is there really forgiveness? It's because of the wrath of God that we know that he gives us mercy. A God with no wrath would be like a boss with no authority. Now, like I said, I believe that verse 6 is not a threat. I believe it's a reminder. We see that because in the next verse, which we'll talk about later, but in the next verse he says, In these you two once walked when you were living in them. It's no longer connected with who you are. So Paul says, remove these sins. But secondly, he says, to restrain the sinful attitudes of self. Now, he goes into, in verse 8, another list. And this list has a little different look to it. It's not about sexual immorality or lust or the desire for more. This list is how we relate to other people around us. This is one very relational. And the command here is, in verse 8, but now put uh, you must put them away. This is the idea of, of holding them back or, or restraining. This requires restraining the tendencies within us. I think this one tells us that, that those tendencies are continued to be there, but we've got to hold them back. So what are we to restrain? He tells us a few things here. First of all, he says we are to restrain anger. What is anger? Anger is a deep, uh, one commentator defined it this way, a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's a, you get angry inside. I'm going to keep it inside, but man, am I angry at you. We'll often ask the question, well, you know, the Bible says be angry and sin not, which implies, yes, I can be angry and not be sinful. Charles Spurgeon has something to say about this. He says, anger is not always or necessarily sinful, but it has such a tendency to run wild that whenever it displays itself, we should quickly question its character by asking, do you do well to be angry? It may be that we can answer yes. We do well to be angry with sin because of the wrong which it commits against our good and gracious God. He who is not angry at transgression becomes a partaker of it. Sin is a loathsome and hateful thing, and no renewed or changed heart can patiently endure it without being angry. Thus, being angry at sin is understandable and righteous. Then he says this, but far more frequently it is to be feared that our anger is not commendable or even justifiable, and then we should answer no. Is it not the old evil heart seeking to gain dominance? And should we resist it with the might of a newborn nature in Christ? Anger. The second one he says is wrath. 
Now, we often, in our thinking, exchange anger and wrath, and we kind of define them the same way in our English language sometimes, but as if they're the same thing, but they're not. Let me explain the difference. Anger is an emotion. Okay? You, you ever hear someone uh, anger, uh, see someone angry, and it's just like they're, they're building up inside, and you can see the emotion all over their face? Well, wrath is the action. Okay, anger is this. Anger is you're driving down the road and, and you get cut off in traffic and, and, and you're irritated with the person. Oh, how dare they do that? Wrath is this. You lay on your horn, you speed up as fast as you can, you pull in front of them, and then you look back in glee. That's wrath. The meaning of the word here suggests revenge. Not just, oh, I'm angry at you. It's, no, I'm going to do something about it. Oftentimes in Scripture, this word is translated rage. Paul says, restrain him. Hold it back. Thirdly, malice. The Greek word here is one that means desiring to harm another person. This is a, a little broader than anger and wrath. Um, malice is the type where it, it, it oftentimes hides itself behind good attitudes. But it's mean-spirited and nasty. Malice is the type that's, that's two-faced. Uh, picture with me, you're at work. The rumor going around is that your boss is leaving and they're looking to replace the boss from, in, from, from inside the business and and, and you know that it's between you and one other person, and you've been there longer, and you're more qualified, and, and you, you know what's going on more, but you find out the other person's getting the job. Now, they come walking by you one day, and you go up to them, and you go, I am so happy for you. I am so glad you got this job. You're going to be such a good boss. Oh, I, I'm just so thankful I get to work for you. And then you turn around and say to your coworker, he's going to fail. He's no good. That's malice. Paul says this should not be in your life as part of your new identity. Fourthly, slander. Now, this is interesting. As I was studying this word, slander, I, I found that... Um, that this is used in two different places throughout the New Testament, uh, depending on who it's connected with. If, it's, if this word is used in connection with God, it's translated as blasphemy. If it's used in connection with man, it's translated as slander. But I think there's a similarity there in those. Blasphemy is to do anything that uh, belittles or misrepresents the name of God. Slander is the same thing. It's the utterance of false charges or a misrepresentation that seeks to belittle or damage another person's reputation. It's, it's the idea of attempting to wound someone's reputation by evil reports. Paul says we've got to restrain that. Fifth, obscene talk. Um, 
Again, this is another interesting word in the Greek. It's the only place in the Bible it's used is in this particular passage. And so as I was studying it, there are a few different opinions of what this word means. Some believe that it would imply vulgar language or uh, language that is uh, not appropriate for Christians, and that, that could be true. But other people say it's, it's abusive speech. And so as I was studying it, I was, I was trying to understand what is being said. And I think as I looked at it and looked at the context that it's in, see, all of these are dealing with relationships, and so I believe this one as well, and so I actually think it's a combination of the two. I believe that in the context, we see that Paul is speaking about our attitudes towards other peoples and relationship with other people, and though obscene language does does impact others, it doesn't directly in the same way maybe that anger or wrath or malice or slander do, and so this is more like uh, offensive language or detrimental language or that which does not lead to edification. In other words, this is talking in a way that tears others down, rips others apart, and causes others to sin. It's talking in a way that is not pleasing to God. Paul says these are things that ought not to be so. As Christians, we have to be cautious of that. Then we get to verse 9, and on this I will close. Verse 9, he says, Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Um, Some people do not see this connecting back to the previous verse because there is no obvious connection here between verses 8 and 9. However, I have a hard time not seeing a correlation Uh, between the wrong attitudes of self that we see in verse 8 and the rebuke against lying in verse 9. The idea there is they deal with relationships, and and when Paul's saying, hey, how you interact uh, should be put away, and then in verse 9 he says, do not lie, and then he says at the end of that verse, uh, because this is part of your old self, which you've put away. And so I see the connection there, but the idea here of this lying is, is uh, uh, an interesting one. The, the verb that's used here in this passage is a present imperative, which means it's an emphatic command. It's, it's Paul, uh, we don't see it in the language here, but if Paul was speaking, he wouldn't just say, do not lie. He would just simply go, stop lying. That's really the idea. This is not a, a, a mild command. This is a, a very emphatic command. And Paul is, is saying, this does not match up with a person who has put to death the flesh. So stop doing it. And finally, in closing, why are we to restrain these things? I'm going to go back to verse 7. He says, In these you too once walked. I believe that this verse 7 applies to both lists. Paul Uh, says to stop doing these things. Why? First of all, because you've already escaped the judgment. But secondly, because these define your past, not your present. And this brings me full circle back to my introduction where we talked about uh, me and my wife getting married and me changing my identity. Your identity is not connected to these vices. My identity when I got married was not a single guy. It was changed. 
And again, as I said at the beginning, it would not uh, be effective if I just changed them just so that I could get my wife to be happy with me. No, I have to change them because I understood I was someone different now. I had a new identity. And as a Christian, we need to remove the actions of the flesh that identified you before and restrain and put away the attitudes of self that were once part of your old DNA, but they're not anymore. Now, next week, we will get into the next part of this because you cannot put off if you don't put on. And so we, this week it's put off, it's getting rid of, it's, it's removing, it's restraining, but next week we'll get, on, we'll get into, okay, God wants us to not be a part of these anymore, but what is it God wants us to go to? What does our new identity look like? We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for all that you do. We're thankful for this text and for the beauty of it. And Lord, I pray that you'll help us to understand uh, more and more each day that you have changed us. Lord, we know that the truth is, is it takes work for that to come out in practice. It's, it's not just as easy as, as saying no anymore. Lord, we're going to continue to battle, and so I pray that you'll help each person here. Lord, if there's any Christians in here that, as we looked at these sins, they're, they're saying, yeah, these are sins that I, that I struggle with in my life. Lord, I pray these, these first ones, the ones of passions and desires, that they will, they will remove them, they will... They will kill them. And the other ones, those internal attitudes that come out in relationship with other people, I pray that you will help us as believers to restrain them and not let them come out. And Lord, I just pray you just help us to have, have the willingness to do what is necessary to match the identity that you've already gave, given us through the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you again in Jesus' name.